Go ahead and grab a seat if you would. All right, grab a seat if you would. If uh, been a couple weeks since I've been here, so if you're new or newer to our young adults here, my name is Brian Howard. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, it is good to be back with you. I've been out for a few weeks, and some of you know this. Some of you've been praying for this, uh, but been out a few weeks because uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, three weeks tomorrow, in fact, uh, my wife gave birth to this uh, beautiful little peanut right here. Uh, yeah, so this is my daughter. Uh, Hope Catherine Howard, and uh, she was born uh, on February 25th, and uh, baby is healthy, mama is healthy, uh, older siblings are just fascinated and exciting about this little like baby in the house right now, and it is the sweetest and greatest thing. Uh, people have been asking, are you sleeping? The answer is, of course not, uh, but coffee is God's good gift and God's good blessing, right? And so we just power through. Um, and, and man, I, I'll tell you, this is just... Um, one of the things I never want to do is like over-spiritualize the world and be like, yeah, I forgot to tie my shoe. And I'm like, it was a demon, right? Like, I don't want to do that, right? And at the same time, so sometimes we can over-spiritualize it and be like, Mir- like the miracle of birth, right? And it's like, no, technically it's like a biological process, but it's like the closest thing to a miracle, okay? If you've ever actually like witnessed someone give birth and then how the female body like responds to now jump into like mothering mode, it is like a superpower God has endowed women with and said, you can bring new life into this world and so just so grateful for my wife, uh, so amazed uh, with her as a wife and as a mom. Uh, and it's just a, an honor and a privilege as a dad uh, to raise a little girl like this. And so uh, that's what's going on in my household. Um, and that's uh, just kind of the update on life for me. But this, this got me thinking, um, my daughter being born, as we jump into the text we're going into tonight. So again, if you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, so if you have your Bible on your phone, that's fine, Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, or you can jump into uh, that on your, if you have a hard copy Bible with you. Um, but as we jump into Isaiah 8 tonight and continue this teaching series on this Old Testament prophecy, uh, I've been thinking of this question, and the question is really the question that every mom or dad asks as their new child is being born into this world. And the question is really simple. It's this one. It's the question something like, what kind of world was she born into? Like, what kind of world is she born into? And someday, if you have children, and I know most of you don't have children, but if you do someday, you'll ask this question, like, what kind of world are we bringing this child into? And I was thinking about this question for, for Hope. Like Hope was born into a world, she was born basically the same week, the same day that Russia invades Ukraine. And so there's this massive war going on in Europe, this thing that's captured all of our imagination. And so I go, okay, my daughter Hope was born into a world of war. And then my son Noah was born two years ago. He was born in March of 2020. Like he was born and like at the hospital, like, do you have a fever by chance? I'm like, no. I'm like, oh, whatever. You know, like, and and then it just got worse from there, right? Like, and so my daughter Hope was born into a world of war. My son Noah was born into a world of pandemic, of disease, of death. And then my my daughter Grace was born in um, October of 2017. And maybe most of you don't remember this, but I had family in the city at the time. Some of my friends were in there at the time. But if you remember in Las Vegas, in October 1st of 2017, there was that horrible shooting at at that concert, at a country concert in Las Vegas. And like two days later, my daughter is born. And so my daughter, Hope, is born into a world of war. My, da- my son, Noah, is born into a world of pandemic and disease. And my daughter, Grace, is born into a world uh, of terrorist attack on our country. And I just think to myself, what kind of world is she born into? What kind of world are my kids born into? And here's what I'm tempted to think. I'm tempted to think that the Howard family just got uniquely unlucky with the birth of our children, right? I'm tempted to think it was just like, man, our kids were born and like terror happened in the world. But here's what I bet. 
I bet I could put my finger on any date in the last thousand years of human history and there was some tragedy that happened on that day. That's the case, right? Like, I think we all know intuitively, like, I could give you those examples, but I could point to any date in the last decade, and somewhere in the world, something is happening that is absolutely catastrophic and devastating. And here's what I want to answer this question was, what kind of world is she born into? Here's the world. She was born into a world filled with darkness and desperate for light. That's the kind of world my daughter was born into, because that's the kind of world all of us were born into. This is the default position of the world. This is the default position of humanity. It is a world of darkness aching and crying out for the light to break through. That is the world my child was born into. That is the world you were born into. That is the world all of your children one day will be born into. Until Jesus comes, that is the world that exists. And yet... There's this remarkably resilient and an impressive and beautiful passage we're going to look at tonight that faces this reality fully and yet speaks hope into this situation. So again, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 is where we're going to begin. If you have your Bible with you, it'll be on the screen as well. It says this, consider or consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. So again, if you're new to this series, we're looking at the book of Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah is a prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And this prophecy was spoken from God through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. In other words, what we're looking at tonight is not something that's being spoken to the unbelieving world. It is something being spoken to God's people. It is something being spoken to people like us who many of us in this room trust and know and love God. And here's what it says here. There's a certain kind of person Isaiah is talking to that has not consulted God's instruction. They're not speaking according to the word. And because of that, even though they are part of God's people, they have no light of dawn. Verse 21 says they're distressed and hungry. They roam through the land and they're famished and they're enraged. So in other words, what begins with them not listening to God What begins with them not heeding God's instruction, not doing things God's way, ends up with them enraged, and they look up at heaven, and what do they do? They do two things. It says they curse their king, and they curse their God. So here's the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint of the world, and it's the same picture I just spoke about that my children were born into. But like, I want us to understand this, that the default position of the human heart is to rebel against the rules and the responsibility and the reality that God has put into place. Here's what Isaiah understands about your heart and my heart and the heart of people living 700 years before Jesus. He understood that the default position of our heart was to look at the way God has created the world and say, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. This is the default position of the human heart, to look at the reality God has created and go, that's nice, God, that you created it that way, but we are smarter than you, God. We're better than you, God. We know better than you, God, because we are advanced people living in the 7th century B.C., Because we are advanced people living in the 21st century, the most enlightened folks who have ever lived. We war against the reality God has created. That is the default position of the human heart. To say, God, I know how you've defined reality, but I'm quite smart, God. I don't know if you've heard of me, and I'd like to define it my way. Uh, Like we, we war against the rules. Like back to the very beginning of the Bible, like the foundational story of the Bible, God puts two people, Adam and Eve, in the garden. He's like, you got one rule. They're like... 
let's break the rule, right? It's the only thing. There's one rule and they war against it. And then we war against the responsibilities. It's like God says, there are rules. There are ways you should live, ways you should operate. There are responsibilities put upon your shoulders. And all of us go, thanks for your input, God. I'm going to do my own thing. This is the default position of the human heart. And hear me, this is the reason for the chaos, suffering, and pain in your life and in this world. This is the reason this world is filled with chaos. Because we look to God, just like the people here in 8, 21, and 20, or 20 and 21, we looked at God and said, nice ideas, God. It's cute that you think you get to tell us how to do our thing, but we're gonna go in our own direction. And here's the problem with this default position of the human heart. This problem, the problem in our rebellion against God is this problem, that when you go to war with reality, you always lose. When you go to war against the reality God has created in your life, you always lose. It never goes well for you. Let let me put it a few different ways to you. Some of you have gone to war with a reality that God has built into every human heart. And here's the reality. Do you know that you need to sleep seven to nine hours per night in order to function properly? Now, Now, listen, you get a pass if you've had a baby, okay? But if you've not had a baby and you're just like, I stay up till two, three in the morning, get up at six, I've been doing this for four years and I think I'm about to die, you have gone to war with reality. And it's gonna come back at you. When you go to war with reality, it always loses. And for some of us, we just think we can will our way through this world living the way we wanna live rather than the way reality actually operates. Like you imagine the type of person who's like, you know what, I just don't believe in the monetary system of this world. I think that's just so secular. And so I'm not gonna pay my bills anymore. Try that. Go to war with that reality and find yourself homeless. Why? Because when you go to war with reality, reality always wins because God has created the world in a certain kind of way. And when you decide you're gonna push against it, do your own thing, ignore the way God has created the world, it always comes back to bite you. And there are silly examples we can use. And there are powerful and profound moments in our life where we war against the reality God has created and we suffer for it right? That there are ways we war against God's reality, ways we war against the rules, responsibility, and reality God has created that always causes pain. Like, do you know that God has built the universe in such a way that when you are generous with your money, when you give it away, it loses grip over you? And yet some of us decide, I'm going to hold on to my money. I'm never going to give it away. You've never given a dime to the church or to the poor or to global missions. You've never done that. And you are at war with reality. Because when you choose to hold all of your money and never give it away, you are at war with the way God has woven into the reality of the universe. Like, do you know that God has actually woven into reality that honoring your mother and father is not an optional thing? It is something core to you thriving and living in this world. And for some of you, you do that and it's beautiful. And for others, you've decided that you don't need to actually honor your father and mother. That's a cute little commandment you tucked in the the 10 commandments, God. But I'm gonna do my own thing because I don't happen to agree with my parents on politics. So I'm gonna slander them. Reality always wins. When you go to war with reality, it always wins. Listen, if you choose when someone has wronged you, to stay bitter and angry and resentful against that person. If you choose to do that, rather than go with the way God has instituted, that you would walk down this painful and difficult path of forgiveness, reality is always going to win. Listen, when it comes to honoring your parents or or refusing to be generous, when it comes to like sexual purity and how God has designed marriage, when you walk against that reality, God, uh, you're always going to lose. When you lie and manipulate, when you cheat and you steal, when you harm and destroy, when you are bigoted and rude and angry and mean, when you do any of these things, 
You are at war with reality. And the reason you will lose is because reality is what God has created in this world. Here's how I like to talk about reality. I think reality is a lot like a rubber band. Reality is like a rubber band, okay? And here's what you all know about a rubber band. Um, Rubber bands, by their very definition, can be pulled, right? But they can't be pulled forever, right? Like, I can get it this far. I probably can't get it this far, right? Because if I do, it's going to eventually start to break. And here's what I need some of us to understand tonight. God has created the world in a certain kind of way. And if you decide you're going to war against the way God's created the world, you're going to change how God's created the world. You're going to ignore what God has to say, and you're going to live life in your reality in your own way. You can stretch it for a little bit. But eventually, if you start pulling so hard against the way God has designed the world, eventually your whole world is going to snap. And it's going to cause you pain. And here's what I wonder in this room. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who has just been warring against the way God has created the world, the way God has called you to live, operate, the way God has called you to do all different things, and you are trying to pull at reality. And when you pull at reality, it eventually snaps back. You can't pull forever, and it's going to cause you pain. Let me put it to you this way. Um, Acknowledging the suffering that really exists in this world. Um, part of what we have to recognize is that there are certain things we suffer with in this world um, that are not our fault at all. So let me speak to some of you tonight. Some of you have been through a kind of coercion and abuse at some point in your life, and you need to hear me very clearly tonight. That abuse was not your fault. It was not your fault. And I think what happens here is here's how Satan just gets the better of us. For some of you, you have been abused or coerced and somehow your will has been violated and you have found a way to blame yourself for the abuse that someone else put on you. And I need to remind you tonight that it was not your fault. You do not deserve to be abused or coerced or harmed or anything like that. But then here's the flip side of it. And here's how Satan deceives us. For some of you, it is not your fault, and yet you have convinced yourself that it was your fault and you deserved it. But for others of you, you have been living your life where you are pulling the rubber band, snapping your own wrist, and then going, come on, God. Like, like you've, it is actually your fault. You, you have lived in such a way that's causing you pain. You have warred against the reality that God has created in this world. Just like the folks here in Isaiah chapter 8, you're warring against God, his rules, his responsibilities, and his reality, and then you're blaming God when it hurts. So here's one of the things I've learned. Um, again, for some of you, you need to believe the truth that your, what you have gone through was not your fault. But for some of you, you need to understand that you are suffering in this world but you have actually added to your suffering. You have actually added to your pain by pulling on the reality God has created and allowing it to snap and cause pain to your life. Again, for some of you, I need you to understand it's not your fault, but for some of you, and I need you to break out of the default assumption that the pain in your life could never be your fault. See, I think some of us operate in this world in such a way where we constantly think whatever happens, it's not my fault. It's gotta be someone else's fault. And what we see here in Isaiah chapter eight, verse 20 and 21, is there's these people And they're raging. They're shaking their fists against God and the reality he's created. And when that happens, it will always snap back on us. It will always cause us pain. Verse 22 goes on this way. It says, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Like in other words, the type of person who looks at God goes, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. I don't want anything to do with you. Here's the promise for them. These words in the text, distress, darkness, fearful gloom, and utter darkness. So so here's what's happened in our world. Like, Like you go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve. You go all the way back to the beginning and human beings said, God, forget you and your rules. We're going our own direction. 
And because of that, what was entered into the world through sin was distress, darkness, fearful gloom, this utter darkness, this chaos, this pain, this sin that entered into the world. And some people think this is just like some silly story, like Adam and Eve, what does that have to do with anything? Adam and Eve bringing this into the world unleashes a kind of darkness and pain in all of our lives. And here's why this matters. Because we need to understand that most people, most people think that comfort, that ease, that life going easy and things being well and things being nice and comfortable and wonderful is the norm in our world. But I need us to understand this that it is not the world. See, most people assume that comfort is the norm. The Bible is going to assume something different. The Bible is going to assume that suffering is the norm in this world. This is the expectation I need us to have. And here's why this matters: because your expectations of life will shape your experience of life. Your expectations of what the world is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to feel, what it's supposed to be like, will shape your experience. It's like this. Like when you go to work out, for those of you who do workouts of any kind, you don't expect it to be pleasant, right? You're like, you may enjoy it, but you're like, like going to lift weights. You're like, oh, this tickles, right? Like that's not what you're experiencing, right? When you go in to work out, you're like, this is going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. The same when you travel, right? When you travel and you get on a plane and you go somewhere, you're not like, man, I cannot wait for that sandwich they're going to feed me on the plane, right? You just know it's going to be uncomfortable and stressful and difficult. You're going to be in a tight little plane seat and you're going to be in line and you're just going to be miserable. But you expect it. And when you expect something to be a certain way, it changes your experience of it. And if you have in your mind that travel is going to be this lovely, wonderful thing, and it's going to be super easy and not stressful, and the food's going to be wonderful and everything's going to be great, you're going to be miserable. Why? Because your expectations shape your experience. And here's what I need us to know. I think far too many Christians living in the 21st century West I'll say it, living in 21st century Conejo Valley, Southern California, have the expectation that life should always be easy. Have the expectation that life should always be comfortable. Have the expectation that life should always go well. Things should always be peaceful. The world is getting better and better and better. And all those dark ages of before, we even have a word for it, right? The dark ages. Those were the dark ages. Now we live in the enlightenment, right? All the dark stuff is gone. Now we're in the light. It's all good. And yet here's the problem. You and I know that's not true. That is not the world you actually inhabit. The world you actually inhabit is the world where Russia invades Ukraine. The world you actually inhabit is the world for the last two years where we have watched nearly a million Americans die from a disease. The world you actually inhabit is the world where you have drama and chaos and friction and problems and issues in your family that you can't seem to resolve. That's the world you actually inhabit. So here's what we need to be. We need to be a people who see the world in a distinctly biblical way, a distinctly Christian way. I'll put it this way, that Christians should be saddened by the suffering of the world. Like your heart should be deeply moved when you see images on your TV screen, on social media, when you see what's going on in the different places of the world, it should bring your heart sadness and heaviness. You should be moved by it. But let me be abundantly clear. Christians should not be shocked by the suffering in the world. You should not be shocked that one nation would invade another. If you've somehow convinced yourself that the world was just hurtling toward peace, darkness was behind us, light was ahead, everything was getting better for all of time, you have bought into a secular progressive narrative that has its basis in the enlightenment, not the actual view of the scripture. That's what you've bought into. This idea that the world's getting better and better and better and all the problems are disappearing and it's just good times from here on out has never been the case, will never be the case until Jesus Christ returns in glory, cracks the sky and brings us all home. That's what's ahead of us. 
I just want to be honest. I don't want us to be a naive people who are shocked when we see terrible things in this world. We should be saddened. We should be moved. We should step in to help, like Pastor Brian was talking about earlier, the ways our church is funding and helping things in Ukraine. But we should not be shocked. In fact, Christians should be the greatest realists in the world about suffering. We must be a people who are not shocked by suffering in nations, in communities, in families, and in our own lives. We need to be the type of people who understand that the darkness has not gone away, that it continues to linger and will continue to linger until the final light breaks through. Now we're in chapter nine and verse one, it says this, nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. So again, chapter eight is going to end with this gloom and this darkness and this pain, this real acknowledgement. This is the thing I love about the Bible. Like if you're kind of new to the Bible, I want you to know the Bible doesn't kind of imagine the world as this fairy tale where everything's nice. The Bible is gritty and honest and real about the world. And then it jumps into verse nine and it says, nevertheless, like, yes, the world is gloomy. Yes, there's bad things. Yes, suffering is the norm. And if the sermon kind of ended here, it would be like the most depressing night of young adults ever, right? Like the world's terrible, deal with it, let's sing, right? Like, <laughs> but that's not it, right? What do we see here? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, I don't want you to get this mixed up because many people, even many Christians read it this way, that there will be no more distress. But it doesn't say there will be no more distress. It says there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Like in other words, it's gonna strike this hopeful note in chapter nine, but it's not going to live in a reality where distress is no longer a part of the human experience. In fact, I see this verse and I think of this phrase that distress is inevitable. Distress is inevitable in your life. If you have imagined that somehow you would come to faith in God and everything would get better and you would have no more problems and no more drama and no more financial challenges and no more health challenges, you would believe something. It's just not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity assumes that distress is inevitable. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. But here's what it does assume. Distress is inevitable, but gloom and despair are optional. They're optional. The assumption of the Bible is you're going to suffer. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be difficult days. There's going to be seasons you walk through that feel like hell on earth. But gloom and despair, this attitude that says things will never get better, everything is lost, there's no good in this world, that's an option. That's a choice. And you can choose that. And many in the world urge you to choose that. But biblical Christianity does not demand it. In fact, it invites you out of it. Where gloom and despair are not something you have to live in. You can suffer and choose not to live in gloom and not to live in despair. Listen, distress is inevitable, but gloom and despair are optional. Distress is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment are optional. When you suffer, the easiest thing is to be bitter and resentful at the world. And when you're bitter and resentful at the world, what you really are is bitter and resentful at God because he owed you better. Because you shouldn't have had to suffer. Because other people should have to suffer, but you've earned it and God owes you one. And so bitterness and resentment in my heart is always an indication that I think God has wronged me and he owes me. And for me, I can say that distress is inevitable. I'm going to suffer in my life, but I do not have to suffer with bitterness and resentment that make the whole thing worse. Listen, distress is inevitable. Distress is inevitable, but anger and rage are optional. Anger and rage are optional. For some of you, your response to suffering is just to rage at the world, to be angry at it. How could this breakup happen to me? How could I lose my job when she didn't? How could this happen to me when it didn't happen to this person? There is an anger and a rage that can bubble up in us when we are suffering. 
And that anger and rage, once again, we can point it at all sorts of people. Really, our anger and rage is us shaking our fist at God, saying the world shouldn't be this way, and it's your fault, God. It's your fault. Listen, distress is inevitable, but anger and rage are optional. Distress is inevitable, but negativity and cynicism are optional. You do not have to fall into this place where you've suffered once, and so you're going to be cynical about everything. You had a bad relationship. Therefore, every woman is terrible and awful and not worthy of your time. Every jo- You got fired from a job. Therefore, every company or corporation is terrible and awful and the worst. You don't have to live in this cynical kind of way. And cynicism and negativity, this kind of angst toward the world, has run amok in our generation. And we, as biblical Christians, stand here and go, no, that's not us. Because I need to hear me, cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. Negativity is not a fruit of the Spirit. I'm not saying you have to be a smile all the time, positive, pretend all the time type of individual, but cynicism and negativity are at root this thing that says the world has no good in it, and we as Christians reject that. We reject it. There is love, and there is hope, and there is peace, and there is kindness, and there is justice, and there is joy in this world. See, I want you to hear me so clearly on this. If you have believed in a kind of Christianity that says, if you just trust God, you'll never suffer, you have believed in a false kind of Christianity. The Bible is going to promise you that you're going to suffer. But in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your distress, gloom is not inevitable. Nor is your your bitterness or resentment or anger or rage, negativity or cynicism. It goes on this way in verse one. After it says, nevertheless, there's no more gloom for those who are in distress. It says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, if you heard me read that verse and you are wonderfully confused right now, welcome to the club, okay? And here's what I want you to know. Like when you read the Bible and you come across a verse like that and you're like humbled the, the land of Zebul, Zebul, what? And Naphtah, who? Right? And you're just like confused. You're like, I don't get what this means. I, I just want you to kind of keep pushing into this. But like the beautiful thing about the Bible is you can read a verse, be utterly wonderfully confused, move on. 10 years from now, you read the verse again and it just comes alive to you in a whole new way. Like that's what we do in Bible reading. So again, we read this verse and it's really easy to be like, I have no idea what it's talking about. But here's the wonderful thing. You exist in a land in a time where you can do something that most of human history couldn't do. You can take this verse, put it into Google and you'll find wonderful things. So so I put this exact verse into Google and I wanna show you the map I found. Let me show you this map here. So I put it in Google and this is what pops up. And here's what I wanna show you. So again, what does it begin with? It says that he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, you're going to look at this map right here. Okay, everyone can see this. Most of you can see this. There's a map right here on your left. The map shows the promised land, this nation of Israel. And it's been broken up among the tribes of Israel, almost like states within a nation. Like your tribe, you get Oregon, and you get California, and you get Texas, and you get Hawaii, and sorry, you get... um, I'm going to pick on Alaska, right? Like you get this, right? So it breaks it all up. And so here's what we see in the very north. We see these two states, these two areas called Zebulun and Naphtali. So when it says that he has humbled Zebulun and Naphtali, it is basically saying here are two states, two areas, two tribes that God has utterly crushed. And what does it mean by this? Well, in the ancient world, the Assyrian empire, and some of you learned this in ancient history, was this massive, vicious empire that would just go about the world destroying and burning down cities, raping women, stealing children into slavery, this awful, terrible empire. And they marched right through Naphtali and right through Zebulun, and they crushed those places. 
So when it says God humbled those places, here's what it means. It means that this is a place that has been crushed and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. But then what does it say? If you have your Bible in front of you, here's what it says. Can we actually go back to the verse, uh, in verse 1 here? It says, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Okay, so there's this place in northern Israel that just gets crushed, humbled, destroyed. And then let's go back to the map here. Then here's what it says. In the future, he's going to honor this place called Galilee. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about Israel, here's what you know. There's the Sea of Galilee right here. The Sea of Galilee, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus is always on a boat catching fish, walking on the water. That's his place, okay? And here's what happens. It says, in the past, this place got crushed by God. But in the future, he's going to honor it. And how is he going to honor it? God is going to send his son, Jesus, to launch his ministry to the world in the exact place where Israel got crushed. So you see, here's the wonderful thing. When it refers to Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee by the sea, it's referring to the same place. God humbled the place and he's going to raise it up later. And here's why I want you to see this. Because God humbling and raising up is a normative pattern in the Bible. This is what our God does. He crushes, he humbles things, he humbles places, and then he raises them up later. This is a normative pattern we see all throughout the Bible. Listen, God humbles and raises up nations. If you read through the scriptures, what you'll see is that nations like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Judah and Israel, there are times God humbles them, he brings them low, and there are times he raises them up. And I believe this happens still today. God humbles nations and he raises them up. Let's talk about our own nation. There's no question that God has raised up our nation. I'm not saying our nation's perfect. I'm not saying our nation has done everything right. I'm just saying it's unquestionable that God has raised us up to the superpower in this world. And only a fool would think that God could not humble our nation. Only a fool would think that. That's what God does throughout all of history. He raises up nations. He humbles nations for his purposes and for his plan. There is no nation that stands on its feet that cannot be knocked to its knees by the sovereign God. That's what we believe. God humbles and raises up nations. Listen, God humbles and raises up churches. And so you'll see a church that's just thriving and everything's going well. And God will bring that church to its knees. God will humble that church so the church doesn't be, can begin to believe that they are awesome and Jesus is not. This has happened here in the history of Calvary. There have been times Calvary has been raised up, times we've been brought to our knees in humility. God raises up and humbles churches. And then finally, God humbles and raises up individuals. He does. And here's what I want to suggest for some of your lives. I want to suggest that some of you are in a season where God is humbling you, where God is bringing you low. And I'm not prepared to like look into your situation and speak for God. That's not my role tonight. But my role is to say that God is in the business of humbling people so that he can raise them up. And some of you have gone through a season where it feels like everything you loved, everything you stood upon, everything that was great in your life was taken from you. You went through a breakup. You got fired from a job. You lost out on this uh, scholarship. You weren't in this program. You didn't get to go to this school. It felt like all the trappings of your life were taken from you. And I want to submit to you that it is possible that the God of the universe is humbling you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you, but because he has plans to raise you up because that's what God does. God humbles people and then he raises them up. And rather than shaking your fist and warring against God, when you are in that humble position where everything's been taken away, you say, God, you give and take away. Nevertheless, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the attitude and the posture of heart we have. God humbles God raises up and we submit to that rather than raging and warring against it. It goes on this way in the text in verse two. 
It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, and they rejoice before you as the people rejoiced in harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. As in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So, so in other words, it's like, yeah, the world's filled with darkness. But listen, remember when you got whooped in Northern Israel, I, I humbled you, I'm gonna raise you up. Like I'm going to do things. God's at moving, he's at work and it looks like defeat, but God's actually in the process of raising up. And so as they're suffering, as they're struggling, God gives them a reminder, and it's this, that in the midst of their suffering, the Lord's going to make some promises here. And I want you to see these promises. Number one, he promises to rescue his people from darkness. Here in verse two, like it says, the people living in darkness are going to see a great light. The light's going to burst through. They're not going to live in darkness forever. Number two, he's going to bless his people abundantly. Like verse three tells us he's enlarged the nation. Like what once was collapsed is now enlarging. It's growing. Their joy is like of the harvest. Number three, he's gonna defeat the great enemy. Like this Assyrian empire that's coming down on them. God says, they're nothing to me. I will crush them. There is a defeat of the enemy that's coming. And number four, he's gonna bring a lasting peace. Like look, read verse five. You just go like every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood, like these bloody armor that walked into battle. Here's what it says. It'll be rolled up and thrown into the fire because you won't need it anymore because peace is gonna last. See, see, this is what God promises to his people, Israel. And it's this beautiful promise. Like you're in the midst of this suffering, but it doesn't last forever. I'm going to do something remarkable. And wouldn't it be just wild to see that Jesus in the beginning of his ministry quotes from this exact text. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, unrolls the scroll and says, hey, listen, everyone, you've been living in darkness, but there is a light that is here. And that light is not somewhere out there. That light is me. I am the light of the world. Jesus makes these same promises to his people in Matthew 4. Jesus says, I'll rescue you from darkness. To the person in this room who feels like the world is not right, your whole, your whole life is not right, your soul is not right, you need someone to rescue you, there is a God who says, I will rescue you from the darkness you were in. I will pull you out of that. This is what Jesus promises to do. He will rescue us from darkness. He will bless his people. Jesus promises to bless you. Again, some of you have convinced yourself that God is this angry, bitter man in the sky who wants your life to be miserable and you have missed the biblical God that's presented to us. He wants to bless you. He wants to pour out his blessing abundantly on your life. He will defeat the great enemy. And the scripture tells us who the great enemy is. It says the last enemy to to be defeated is death that there will come a day where you will die. You may die. You may die in this lifetime before Jesus comes back. And yet the good news of the gospel isn't that your soul floats away to heaven. It's that Jesus Christ comes back and your body steps up from the grave. That's what's coming. The great enemy of death is defeated in Jesus. And just like Jesus rose from the dead, I believe I will rise too. And so that there will be a day a hundred billion years from now where this body will be raised forevermore. The enemy of death will be defeated. And then finally, He'll bring a lasting peace. And some of you have lived your life in such a way where you don't understand peace, where your life is always anxious and out of control, where it feels like everything is falling apart. And there's a God who wants to offer you peace in the midst of your storm, a peace that comes from knowing the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Listen, this is what Jesus comes to offer. What we see in Isaiah is this prophecy for the people of God. And Jesus comes to say, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the final answer to that prophecy. I am the one who will bring this into your life. 
Verse six goes on to say this. It says, for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard these words. You've probably seen them on a Christmas card somewhere back in December. It was posted somewhere. You saw it on a card. You saw these words. You're familiar with these words. And if you're not familiar with these words, these words are a prophecy about who Jesus is going to be. But here's what I need you to know about ancient prophecy hundreds of years before Christ. They did not read these words and go, sweet baby Jesus. They did not think this. They heard this and went, wow, Okay, somehow God is going to provide for us a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. And you know what they saw all throughout their time of history after this prophecy? They saw some pretty good counselors, some pretty wise people, some people who gave them some pretty good advice, but those counselors weren't wonderful. Then they saw those amazing, mighty warrior kings who fought the battles for God's people, who stood up and they were mighty, but they most certainly were not God. They had people in their life who acted as father figures, who acted as wise men who could lead and walk out and be the father they needed, but they were not everlasting fathers. And they had many princes, but peace, that lasting peace we're all longing for never came. And here's what happens. All throughout the history of Israel, people are kind of coming close to that. They're somewhat like this, but they never really fulfill it. And then Jesus steps onto the scene. Then Jesus steps onto the scene. And here's what you need to know, that Jesus is the final king who does not fail and he will not fail. Jesus is the final fulfillment of that. He cannot fail. He will not fail. And because Jesus is the one who can't fail and the one who won't fail, someone needs to hear me tonight that you can trust him. You can trust him. Like whatever's going on in your life, whatever pain in your life, whatever suffering you're walking through, you can trust Jesus because he's the one who can't fail and won't fail. Can I give you four really practical ways to trust your God in your suffering, to trust Jesus in your suffering? Here are four ways tonight if you're taking notes. Number one, listen to him as your wonderful counselor. Listen to God in the midst of your suffering. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Your suffering might not be your fault, but do not be naive enough to think you can't make it worse. When you suffer, the temptation is to just go into this mode where you start going by your own knowledge, your own understanding, your own way of dealing with it, rather than saying, okay, God, I've lost someone. I've gone through a, lay a layoff at my company. Uh, I've gone through a breakup. Uh, I'm not doing well health-wise. My friends are falling apart. Everything's falling apart. In your suffering, you go, God, what do you have to say to me? God, I want to listen to you. I want you to be my wonderful counselor. I want to listen to what you have to say, and I want to walk in obedience. Listen, whatever suffering you're going through right now, the word of God has something to speak to you and you are doing yourself a great disservice if you don't open it up, if you don't look at it, if you don't read the book, if you don't know what God has to say. And the only way for you to know what your wonderful counselor has to say to you is for you to read your Bible. If you are walking through suffering right now, could that now just be the night where I urge you to read your Bible like never before? Listen to God as your wonderful counselor. Number two, worship him as your mighty God. Worship him as your mighty God. Do you know what the great temptation when I suffer is? I don't know if you're anything like me. When I suffer, you know who I like to think about more than anything else? It's not God, it's me. I like to think about me and talk about me and ponder on me and dwell on me. When I'm suffering and things aren't going well, I love to just kind of curve in on myself and think like, oh, this is so hard. I'm struggling, I'm suffering, this is so hard. But you know what I've always found and you found this too? When you think about yourself constantly obsessively, it doesn't make your life better. It makes it worse. 
So what do we do when we suffer? The worst thing I can do is curve in on myself. And the best thing I can do is raise my hands in worship of my God. An honest worship that doesn't put a smile on my face that doesn't belong there, but says, God, I'm suffering. It's hard. I don't know what to do. And yet I'm going to praise you before this gets resolved because I know you can and I know you will. Worship him as your mighty God. Can I just urge someone tonight? We're going to sing a few songs here at the end. Don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. Raise your hands in your air. Fall into your knees. Like raise your voice like never before. It is so tempting. It is so tempting when you are suffering to come into a place like this and we're singing to just kind of sing like, I'm not really happy and things aren't going well. I want to urge you to do the opposite. Worship him as the mighty God. Worship him as the King of kings and Lord of lords tonight in this place. Number one, listen to me as your wonderful counselor. Number two, worship him as your mighty God. Number three, talk to him as your everlasting father. God is your dad and he wants to listen to you. And some of you had great dads and some of you had dads that you never knew or you wish you never knew because they were terrible and they didn't listen and they weren't in and you felt judged and you felt harmed and you felt like it was a terrible relationship and God is the father that you always wished you had but you never knew was there. That's who God is. He is the everlasting father and he wants to listen to you. You just speak to him like you're his kid. Okay, can I give you a real practical way if that's a struggle for you? If you're like, Brian, you're telling me to pray and prayer is always hard. Can I urge some of you? Some of you never pray out loud. And can I urge you to practice praying out loud? And I just mean like on your drive home tonight, turn off the podcast, turn off the radio that none of us listen to. And like, just like actually in silence, talk to God on your way home. You're like, I got a carpool. Should I do that? No, like not later. Okay. But, 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 but here's what I've been doing recently. Like I found myself in this prayer rut recently. And maybe you think that's weird that pastors have prayer ruts, but believe me, we have prayer ruts. And here's what happened the other morning. I just like went for a walk. And I didn't have headphones in. I usually do. I'm usually listening to something, but I just sat there. I didn't sit there. I walked and I talked out loud to God, like through my neighborhood, down my little street. I was like, God, here's what's going on. And people are probably looking at me like, what's wrong with that crazy guy? Like talking to himself. And I don't care because it was the best prayer time I've had in months. Talk to God. Talk to him out loud. Talk to him on your drive home tonight. Go for a walk in the morning, in the shower tomorrow morning. Go into your backyard and just speak to your father out loud because he's listening. And something happens when we speak out loud to our everlasting father. Listen to him as your wonderful counselor. Worship him as your mighty God. Talk to him as your everlasting father and believe him as your prince of peace. To believe God says, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you anyway. I don't understand what you understand, but I believe that you do. It's me. The other week, I told you about this. I went to the dentist, had a little problem going on. Go into the dentist. The dentist is the worst place on the planet, okay? Because they're in your mouth. You can't see anything. They're like, here's a drill. Boom, right? It's terrible. But why do I go to the dentist? Because I don't understand how to fix my tooth. I don't understand what they're doing, but I trust that he has my best interest in mind. That's how you should look to God to say, God has my best interest in mind. The reason I can have peace with God is because I know he has my best interest in mind. He will not lead me astray. He will not lead me into harm. I can trust him as my Prince of Peace. And for some of you, you need to confess out loud in your spirit. You need to declare with all your heart that God has your best interest in mind. He is for you. He is with you. He is on your side. Here's how we're going to close tonight. Um, and our band can make their way up. Um, Verse seven is uh, the final verse. And it says this, of the, greatness, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time now and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Like remember at the very beginning, 
because we warred against God, we said, forget your reality, forget your rules, forget your responsibility. I'm going my own way because of that chaos comes into the world. Pain and sin and darkness come into the world. But then what's the promise here in verse seven? What do you see up here? He's gonna establish a different kind of world, one of justice and one of righteousness. This is what God is doing in the world. He's rebuilding and he's remaking the world. There's darkness all over the world and yet the light is piercing through. And here's what we see. God is establishing this justice, establishing this light, establishing this righteousness. And so here's what we need to be convinced of to the bottom of our souls. We need to be real enough to say that the world is filled with darkness and suffering, but we need to be biblical enough to say this clearly. The darkness does not last forever. It's temporary. It's temporary. Like it doesn't last forever. The darkness in your life, your suffering, it doesn't last forever. The darkness in this world, the war and the pain and the heartache and the genocide and the terrible things we see in this world, it doesn't last forever. It's temporary. And if you don't believe that, if you can't get your mind around that, can I just remind you that our most beloved stories, our most beloved stories reveal our belief that darkness is temporary and the light shines eternal. What what do I mean by that? I mean, every story that you've known and loved speaks to this reality that the light does not stay out forever. It pierces through the darkness, that the darkness is temporary. Like I'm a dad of a little girl who loves the, the, the movie Sleeping Beauty, right? So we watch this like constantly. What happens in Sleeping Beauty? Well, things go really poorly and things are really bad and there's a dragon and there's Maleficent and everything's really bad and everything's really awful. But how does the movie end? The movie ends with the wedding and they're dancing and suddenly they're in heaven. Why? The darkness is temporary. It does not last forever. It's those of you who are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia and you know how the last book goes, the last battle, there's a battle. It's the last one. That's why it's called it. And what happens at the end of this last battle is it's not just the battle closes, but the whole world is remade. The whole world is renewed. And then suddenly what they start to experience and see is that the darkness is gone and the light has broken through. It's those of you who love the Lord of the Rings and the final movie, The Return of the King. It's the coronation scene where the war is ended. Everything is done. The darkness of the land is gone and the light has broken through. It's the end of the Hunger Games when Katniss has a family and all is right with the world and all of the war and all the fighting is done. For some reason, stories like this ring true to us. It's the end of Harry Potter, right? Where 19 years later, he's got a kid and he's going off to school and everything seems right with the world, right? It's the end of Star Wars where the empire is destroyed and the little Ewoks are dancing around a fire, right? It's the end of Toy Story where Woody and Buzz are friends and Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head are married, right? It's the end. We go like, listen, The darkness is temporary. And the reason those stories ring true to you is because there is a deeper story. It is the story of God in this world that says the light will break through. The darkness in your life doesn't last forever. And if I can just convince one person tonight to know that the God of the universe says the light shall break through. The light shall break through the darkness. And the reason I can stand confidently to say that isn't because I'm just some kind of optimist who knows things will get better. It's because I follow a savior who said this in John 8. Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you know Jesus, the darkness doesn't last forever because there will come a day where Jesus Christ will raise you and will raise this whole world, where sin and death and hell and the devil himself will be thrown into the fiery pit for destruction forever. And God and his righteousness and his justice will reign forever and ever. Amen. That's the world that's coming. So child of God who's suffering tonight, child of God who's disturbed by the suffering and the darkness and the pain and the suffering in this world. Let's face it full on. 
Let's not ever pretend that it doesn't exist. And you'll let us also be a people who know that right in the midst of the darkness, the light shines brighter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks once more for your word. Thanks how it encourages me, how it stirs me, how it challenges me, and how it reminds me that whatever I walk through, God, you're there. God, let there be light in this world and let it come through us. Let it come through your church, the light of the world, the city on a hill. May it shine into the darkness. God, I pray for any man or woman in this room who is suffering, who is struggling, who's feeling the weight of the darkness now. May these moments of singing, may the light pierce through. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected one, the light of the world. And all God's people said real loud, amen.